In this series of scriptures, kind of in the middle and toward the end of the book of the Gospel of Luke, we've encountered a numerous teachings, many of them quite difficult for us to hear, quite difficult for us to bring into our own context in order that we might learn them fully. But so it is with this one as we end in this place in the scriptures. We've been learning lessons about the relationship between and among salvation and discipleship, wealth and social status, the powerless, even children who are powerless, who populate the kingdom of God. And into this situation enters this pious questioner. I just got back from four or five days in Tyler with our youngest daughter, Rachel. Sally and I touched base at home when she came home from being there with her, packing her all up and getting her ready to move. And I went out there to, I don't know for sure exactly what I went out there to do, but I went out there to help her move without trying to lift anything. So I, I went out there for that purpose. And lo and behold, we got a surprise while I was there. It turned out that Eric uh, got finished with a job in Pennsylvania and got to come home. So I got to spend some time with him too. But before Eric arrived, the last of the packing and the cleaning up and the getting ready and making all the preparations was for Rachel and I and June to get accomplished. June was a lot of help. At six months old, she kept us entertained with constant babbling. I'm not for sure who she gets that from, but... They say it's hereditary. (laughs) So Sally must have taught her all she knew about that. And Rachel's been working on it too. But while I was there, I relearned a lesson that I learned a long time ago. Sorry about the need for a lot of water today. I've got some allergies I'd be glad to give you. (laughs) If you can take them completely from me. But let's think about June, six months old. I was reminded again of how totally dependent our babies are upon us. Not that I don't know that intellectually. Not that I haven't experienced it years ago with the two of our own. Not that I haven't experienced it with the first two grandchildren. But this third one came along and I hadn't seen her in a while. And I got there and I began to realize the total nature in which she counted on us. Not only did she count on us for food, she counted on us for entertainment. She loves to talk and will spend quite a long time in her bed just babbling away. Uh, It's going to be really rough when she gets words to go with those sounds because they're constant. She loves to take care of her own needs as she plays with the toys around her. But every so often, it is mandatory that one of the adults in her life comes by to look at her and to smile because she also loves to laugh. She is the happiest baby I've seen in a while. Just laugh and giggle and coo and grin at you when you grinned at her. Uh, Just have a great time. If she was hungry, she lets you know it. If she was tired, she lets you know it. She wants to go to bed at the same time every night. She's dependent completely for her every need and stimulation from the adults around her, just like every small baby is. Then I came home. And then a few days later, Sally came home again, now that Eric is there. And so we were hanging around Michael Lou, our three-year-old, who shall be three tomorrow. There's such a difference between the three-year-old and the six-month-old, right? Now Rachel has words to go with her sounds. Now she can express herself. Now she can do many things for herself. 
Some things she does for herself that she really can't do, but she does them anyway. She's a little miss, you know what, into anything and everything. And so having been gone from her for most of the last month, she was, is infatuated with Miss Sassy coming back home, what the kids call Sally. And so she would go up to Sally and just hang on to her legs and say, Sassy, I love you, I love you. And Sassy, Sally would say, of course, I love you too, Michael Lou. I missed you. I missed you too, Sassy. On and on, following her around like a little duck, you know, everywhere she went. Then she saw me coming in the back door. Papa, I love you too. You know, just that constant need to tell us we, she loves us now. And our need to tell her, of course, we love her too. Totally dependent even in her growing up, continually upon the adults in her life. Not as much as June is, because she's growing a little independent, but still needing us very much in her life, even though she's growing up right in front of her eyes. The relationship that exists between the dependency of a child and children to the adults in their lives is the same kind of relationship that God intends for us to be dependent upon in our relationship to him through Jesus. We are to be totally dependent upon the Father. Totally dependent upon the Father. That is an extremely hard thing for us to accomplish in this world and in this culture. It mirrors what we experience with our children, the way it is meant to be in our relationship to God. It is into this situation that the disciples are telling them, no, don't bring these children to bother Jesus. He ain't got time for the little children. He ain't got time for that. And in that ancient world, that was quite appropriate for them to intervene. Their world is much different than the world of children in that ancient time than it is in our world today. Today, as we think about this passage, we might, might think about being uh, putting a lot of sentimentality in it. We might get emotional about it. We might think of how cute it is that Jesus would take the children into his arms. We might think of how innocent they are when they're three months, not quite so much when they're three years. We might think about the children and how sweet it is and how much... We treasure them as we look at them going to Jesus. We might even celebrate children in our world today. Some would say that we, quite frankly, coddle our children today. In fact, some would say that even as our children grow up to be teenagers, that we continue to coddle them instead of responding to them in a more mature way. I've seen all of that in my life growing up, probably participated in it in some way or another all along as well. But when we read this text... We must not place our thinking about children upon that ancient world because they did not view children in the same way that we do now. In their, in their world, a child had no social or legal standing. It's not that they weren't, didn't have value, but they also had no individual rights. They really belonged to the father of the family. They were, in essence, in the same social standing and situation of, of dependency as a slave. Yes, they were loved, but they belonged to the fathers. And the fathers, for good or evil, were free to do whatever they wanted with their children. Now, we hardly understand a world like that. It's so different than we take in our approach to children. 
But we must remember that these powerless children are the ones who were coming and being brought to Jesus. It's no, no uh, chance that they were bringing their children. They were so small that they had to be brought to Jesus. They couldn't even take themselves to Jesus. They were totally dependent upon everyone else and overlooked most of the time. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, the hopeless is the center stage of so much of the teaching, according to Luke. They are the ones that belong, according to Jesus, however, to the kingdom of God. In fact, he said, in fact, quite clearly, that if we want to go to heaven, we must become like the little children in our approach to God. Completely humble. We must become like a child. Hopeless without the hand of God. Now, when you think about that in relationship to our relationship to God, it's a little bit disquieting. It's a little bit disturbing because we don't like to think of ourselves in that term. There's nothing in America that is about being dependent, really, is there? We are all about being independent. We are all about being self-sustaining. We are all about the rugged individual. And because our culture saturates us so much with that thinking, which has some good attributes to it, it is very difficult for us to think about Christianity and to think about it in terms of being totally dependent upon God. In other words, we're a lot like that rich young ruler. It's not only difficult for them, and him is difficult for us. We have nothing to give to Jesus until we give our total dependence to him. Let me say that again. We have nothing to give to God or to Jesus until we give our total dependence into his hands. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. This is what it means when it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. This is what it means when Jesus looks into the eyes of this young, pious ruler, who really was a model for the Jewish society, a model of faith, if you will, a, a young man who was keeping the commandments. He went to Jesus. In fact, we kind of said, Come on, Jesus, give the guy a break. He's keeping all the commandments. He's here asking if there's anything else he needs to do. He's clearly seeking to be a follower of you. But then he asked that question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In some way, this young man, this young ruler, was realizing that even though he's doing all these other things and he was being a good Jew, it doesn't seem quite enough. It wasn't reaching at his greatest need. It wasn't giving him the assurance that he thought. And Jesus responds to him. You must keep the commandments. He said, oh, done that since I was young. He said, then there's one thing more, which is really stretching it. There's really three things more. After all, it's got to be a three-point sermon, right? There are really three more things. He says, you got to sell all you own. Then you got to give all that you get from it to the poor. And then you can follow me. 
Three things. Wow. He could have said it more simply. He could have said, you must have no other gods before me. He could have said, I'm a jealous God. I will be first or I will be nothing. And then he goes on to tell a parable about the wealthy person going to heaven. It's harder than for a camel to crawl through the eye of a needle. And by now, the day's disciples are sitting around him going, well, what chance have we got? I mean, how are any of us going to get to heaven? What, what is this about? This is, this is terrible. What can we do? Who can get to heaven? And then he says, with people, it is impossible. But nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Remember, there's no one good but the Father. You know, it's probably something we should recite to people when they walk up to us and we've labeled them in our minds as one of those sinners out there. You know, they don't go to church. They don't, they don't talk about God. They slam God's name. They do all the things wrong. So when we see them approaching, we get ready to, to do battle, Right? It is our chance to quote a few scriptures to them, give them a chance to, re- to respond to the gospel and set them straight, right? And then in the back of our head, we need to have one thought to correct all those other thoughts. There is no one good but God, and that includes me. Only then when we realize that we have nothing to give to God either, except a response to the grace that is unending that he pours into our lives. We can't come to God with our list of things we've accomplished or become and have God pat us on the head and say, good little soldier, Christian soldier, uh, come on into heaven, you've earned it. You'll never hear those words. You'll never hear those words. You will hear You fought the good fight. You finished the course. Enter into your reward. But you don't get to enter because of the good fight. You don't get to enter because you sell your wealth. That wasn't the point. The point was to that young ruler, there's something between you and me, and that is I'm not number one. There's a first reason for the first two commandments, and they're both the same. God is must be number one in our lives. And when we start witnessing to the people who don't understand the church, it's so important for us to say to them, no one is good except the Father. We need to recall that even when we're redeemed, we are still sinners being saved by grace. That even having been justified and pardoned of our past sins and given assurance of our eternal life, that there is still sin in our lives. And we keep, none of us can go to heaven and get to God and say, here, I, here's my list. Look at all the stuff I've done. Man, I sit on the front row. Mama even got me to be quiet part of the time. I listened one Sunday. You know, uh, I even went to Sunday school when I grew up and became a youth. Uh, I even stayed pretty straight. I'm really pretty good. Can I come in? Answer is, not if that's all you've got. 
Well, well, I did some more things. I, I, I taught VBS when I became an adult. I got married to a good Christian girl. I, I, I behaved myself at work. I went to church every Sunday. I hardly ever missed. I gave money to the church. In fact, in fact, I even gave 10% and a gift occasionally. I got above 10%. I, can I come in now? Nope. Still can't come in. Well, what do I have to give you? What do I have to give you? How do I know that I'm going to inherit eternal life? You know that you're going to inherit eternal life when there's nothing in your heart, nothing in your heart, no one in your heart, no thought in your heart, no thought in your mind, nothing that's more important to you, not your children, not your parents, not your grandparents, not getting the million bucks a young lady wanted to get in the children's sermon. There's nothing in your life that's more important to you, including your 401k, nothing in life more important to you than that person that you are totally dependent upon to save you. Nothing can be between you and that person. That person is Jesus. You can't give him anything except yourself. You just have to fall on his mercy and accept his grace, and then you can be saved. We're all in that place. We will always all be in that place. Even when we put together a string of no-hitter innings, you know, it's the seventh inning, it's the eighth inning, and we're, hit, we're pitching a no-hitter. No sins. Perfect attendance. I, I have the little lady across the street. I have the gentleman climb up the ladder on top of the house he shouldn't have been on. I did all these things. It's not enough. Nothing is more important to God than having you love him with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And in fact, that is the only way that Jesus receives us into that eternal kingdom that we all long to be a part of. We all want to know what the secret list is. And the secret list is just singular. Just fall upon your knees and say, I don't have anything to bring except I trust you to save me because I love you. And then we will hear those words we long to hear. The kingdom of heaven is yours now and completely when that day comes and you come to me. That is the message of these stories that have been building up for a couple of chapters. That is a story about humility. That is the story about the children. That is the story about Zacchaeus. That is the story about you and about me. That is a story for everybody who claims this relationship with Jesus Christ. It is... Not just one of the important things in our life. It is the central aligning principle to everything I value. It's more important than my job. It's more important than my vocation. It's more important than the house I live in. It's more important than the number of friends I have. It's more important than being understood. It's more important than anything you can think of on this whole creation. And that's why the disciples were so flabbergasted, and so are we, are we not? Because what if we give him everything, and he takes stuff we don't want him to have? (laughs) That was my argument when God was calling me to do something simple like choose a vocation that was preaching instead of working for the glorious U.S. Postal Service. 
How hard should that have been, right? But I didn't want to do it. What about my kids? I didn't want my kids moving around. They would grow up not being Farmersville farmers. Wow. That would have surely marred their life. <laughs> We'd have to move from one part cities to another and make new friends. Ooh, that'd be terrible. You know, you thought of every reason that was bad. And we, what if I do this? You're going to make me do that. And I don't want to do that. People are going to call me brother and they're going to call me preacher and they're going, they're going to act like I'm some weird, strange duck. And all those things happen. <laughs> but all those things kind of don't really matter because once I decided I can't get away from this, I might as well give in. So I did. And once I did, then everything else fell into place. We haven't starved. I was sure we would. I'm sure my daddy was more than sure we would. When I went to tell him that I was not going to work at the post office anymore, he got really, really quiet. This blue-collar, hard-working man who had worked for every nickel he ever had. And I told him I was going to quit my job and go back to school. And he said, do you have to quit your job? <laughs> I said, no, I don't have to. But if I do, I get through school a lot faster. And... I believe I'm supposed to. Sally's teaching, we won't starve. He didn't say another word. Mama never said a word about all of it. Always she did say one thing. I'm not surprised. I'm thinking, well, you should be because I'm, I'm, I'm blown apart. <laughs> but once, like a little child, we're completely trusting. And this is an aside. This isn't part of the sermon, really, but it's, you know, it's not that early, is it? I guess this is why I don't understand, and I'm not trying to throw rocks at any group of people that have been enough of that publicly lately. One of the things in, in, in the world that happens that I don't think I can intellectually or emotionally grasp is how people harm their children. I've seen what it's done to adults as they grow into adulthood and how it, how it makes everything so difficult for them. I've seen it up close numerous times. I don't understand how a mother or a father can take an innocent small baby or a young child and harm them. They are totally dependent upon how they think and how they grow up and mature to those two people. And to think that someone created in the image of God, I don't understand it. And I never will. But it took me a long time to understand that I'm not any better than they are when it comes to looking at God and trying to have God on my own terms instead of just surrendering myself completely to God. Everything in our lives must be in subjection to our love for God. We're going to have a useless stewardship campaign starting the second Sunday in November. And you say, Doug Bryan is here today. I know Brian's here today, but Brian and I will be okay with this. It's useless because 
Stewardship is not about you signing a card. It's not about you sitting down and figuring out how much money you can give out of all the other needs for on your income to God. Stewardship is about your whole life. It's about your response to God that you claim to love with your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. It's just about that. Jesus doesn't want part of your money. Jesus wants it all. How can that be, you say? Because once you give it all to Jesus, you'll understand that Jesus does want you to be clothed and fed and cared for. But you'll also understand that Jesus wants you to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and teach those who do not know who Jesus is. He wants all of you, your time, your energy, your brilliance, to be pitched into the pot. I should say this stewardship illustration, but I won't. I'll use it. He wants you to behave like you just have for the past year and a half under extraordinary circumstances in ways that Brian and Doug do not understand. And if we don't understand it, that means it's really mystical. How our attendance can slowly get a little smaller and a little smaller. How can we can be beset by so many challenges and tough issues. And how you as a congregation can give greater to the budget than you ever have before. And how our every need has been met. Thanks be to God. God has used you as stewards of your resources for the work of his kingdom. And I have been blessed to watch it, to be mystified by it, to be encouraged by it, and to be challenged by it. Leave behind anything and everything that gets in the way of the one thing. Anything and everything that threatens your relationship to God, get rid of it. Conquer it. Put it in its proper place, and you will experience eternal life here and in the world to come.